Let's go before the Lord together. Father, we come before you now asking that you would illumine our hearts. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your law. May the story of the Bible, the the grand sweeping narrative from cover to cover of your work to create a worshiping community from literally dust to inhabit eternity with you is more glorious than we can possibly wrap our minds around in this single time together. But with your Spirit guiding us, Father, you can apply truth in ways we can't even hope for. So we pray through the preaching of your Word, through the opening of the Scriptures, that Christ would be magnified, that the glory of God would be treasured, and that the Scripture's teaching would become more and more beautiful before our eyes. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the year 2020 is going to be memorable for dozens of reasons, won't it? We'll we'll sort of mark that as a a bookmark in time. So much we think of as pre-pandemic or post-pandemic. COVID-19, a contentious election, other things such as major wildfires out west, hurricanes in the Gulf Coast states, tornadoes in Iowa, murder hornets, many other things mark the year 2020 that we'll always remember. But some of us have already forgotten that tragic death of 41-year-old basketball Laker legend Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter Gianna as the helicopter they were in crashed in the hills of Calabasas, California in January of 2020. Now, while the circumstances surrounding the crash are horrific, and they are, I remember watching the news, and as circumstances had it, I was actually with my parents in South Carolina as the news you know, it hit the, the headlines. And I remember being struck by something unusual, the prolific amount of worship terminology being described to this event in particular. Now we know it's really not up for debate as to whether sports are idolized, even worshipped in our culture today. They just simply are. We have to come to terms with the reality that elite athletes in our country and are sometimes given near godlike status. This, is abund- this was abundantly evident in the days following Kobe's death. A phrase I heard dozens of times, Kobe Bryant is one of those transcendent athletes, meaning his contribution to the world and the qualities he had ascended far beyond the game of basketball and his athletic abilities. As the Grammy Awards would take place the same night as Kobe's death in the Staples Center in Los Angeles, one of the speakers referenced Bryant's death by saying how fitting it was that we remember a man in the very house that he built. Not knowing what else to do, tens of thousands of people began to just spontaneously flock to the Staples Center to get near the physical presence where the glory of Kobe Bryant's career unfolded. Shrines of all sizes memorializing his legacy with handwritten prayers and tributes to Kobe's legacy began to appear everywhere around the Staples Center, so much so that the Staples Center canceled the Lakers' upcoming home game due to the outpouring of love and affection for their fallen hero. Later that week, the Lakers hosted a home game, and the beginning of the game was a celebration, ceremony, in honor of Kobe. Each Laker player, get this, was introduced as Kobe Bryant. Interesting. As if to say, he is all that matters here. All that matters here is that I find union with that guy. 
I am in Him. My multi-million dollar contracts and all that can be left aside. I'm with Him. That is all that matters. I lose my individuality willingly to join in the glory of His greatness. Now, if we can separate ourselves for just a moment from the tragedy of all this for a second, we see a powerful illustration of the human heart's propensity to worship from the shrines, from the handwritten prayers, the hunger to draw near to the house that Kobe built, and for every Laker player to find their hope through union with Kobe, adoring his name, revering his former glory. There is nothing else we can call this but corporate worship. Now, for the same reason, everyone didn't simply honor Kobe in the privacy and the convenience, honestly, of their own homes. But they felt it necessary to get out of their homes and to assemble in order to escalate and elevate the power of that tribute. God is supremely glorified in splendor as His people unite to praise His name, not simply confining their worship to private isolated God and I moments, as important as that is, we assemble as the Lord's people in corporate worship to speak prayers to a God who hears and to hear from a God who speaks. We find ultimate hope through union not with the son of Adam, but with the son of God. We corporately worship a transcendent God in and with the house that He has built and is building for His own glory. Now what a privilege that is ours to be welcomed into this exquisite gift. Why is it though that assembling is such a, and in a particular place, is so instinctive, is such an instinctive worship response for humanity. Is it nothing more than what our culture says is FOMO, the fear of missing out? I just don't want to be left out, so I need to go where the crowd is headed. Is it nothing more than that? Well, if it can be shown that there is something so indelibly pressed into us as humans made in the image of God that finds its fullness in our created purpose of worshiping a triune God, not merely by ourselves, but in and among the people of God, with the saints, then we may have very well picked up on the trail of how the theme of worship culminates throughout the entire Bible. Indeed, I believe this is the case. One of the greatest theologians of the last century from Princeton Seminary in its better days, its more conservative days, Gerhardus Voss, he wrote this time and again. He would say how the the themes in in the Scriptures grow with a seed-like sufficiency a seed-like sufficiency that grows into a mighty, mature oak tree throughout the progress of Revelation. And he encouraged readers to read the Bible with that eternal perspective in view. Where is this seed-like theology leading me? Where does the Bible lead me to conclude? Well, this morning my prayer is that we would sufficiently walk through together how this theme of biblical worship unfolds and grows, even culminates as we track it throughout the Bible storyline. Now, you gave me grace last week. It was a topical sermon last week. (laughs) It's a topical sermon again this week. But that does not mean we will not be all over the Scriptures together. But it may not be as satisfying mentally to just hone in on one place. But I encourage you to track with this study together. Let's dive in with the Lord's help and see 
where this leads us. First of all, let's begin our study where we ought to begin. Corporate worship in creation. In eternity past, God enjoyed this untarnished pleasure of a worshiping community within the fellowship of the Godhead. At creation, God's world is designed to be ruled in God's way and in subjection to His reign. As God's Spirit hovers over the waters, creation stirs with this anticipation of what glory God is about to bring about. And in Eden, God consecrates a location in which His presence can be accessed and enjoyed in a personal manner. And in a very real sense, Adam is created to lead then all of humanity in the worship of God. The cultural mandate, as it's been described in Genesis 1.28, reads as follows, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, this commission carries the notion that Adam would build a world that would reverberate with the worship of God. And in God's kindness, Adam and Eve in the garden is where they are charged to work and to keep it. Presumably, expanding its glory to the ends of the earth. This is indeed sacred space because God is dwelling with His people. It is a joyous fellowship. God's relational presence dwells there. As Beale and Kim helpfully write, they say Eden is a place of God's presence. And the place of God's presence is a place of worship. The expansion of Eden, therefore, is an expansion of worship. Worship fuels mission in Eden. Bears and Eden bears, bears of the image of God, reflect His presence in worship and are propelled forward in their mission to fill the earth with reflections of God's glory. Worship is in fact the goal of God's mission in Eden. Filling the earth by multiplying image bearers in the temple of God's presence who would worship and reflect God's glory to the ends of the earth. The point Beale and Kim so clearly make here is that the essential purpose of Eden is the continual enlargement of the worship of God so His presence might dwell among an ever-enlarging number of His image bearers, filling the earth. Edenic worship, you might say, first consisting of God and two human beings, was intended to multiply as Habakkuk 2.14 so beautifully states that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We might even go one step further by suggesting that the very first pronouncement of the gospel, of gospel hope in the Scriptures, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15, provides the foundation for us to state that it was Christ-centered, Messiah-centered corporate worship that is envisioned to be the climax of God's creation. So just prior to Adam and Eve's eastward exit from Eden, the promise is given that there would come one born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. The rescue of an Edenic worshiping community is underway. There is hope. You get two chapters into the Bible and you may very well think, well, this is depressing. But there is hope. We then see corporate worship under the curse. In the centuries, even millennia, to follow Adam and Eve's horrific expulsion from Eden, humanity will choose to follow in their footsteps time and again. And yet, despite mankind's perpetual love affair with sin and idolatry, God's unassailable plan to create a worshiping, eternal community carries forward. We get as far as Genesis chapter 4 
and trouble comes. Corporate worship is under assault. Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, learned quickly that God will be worshipped on His terms. And He cares deeply what kind of heart they bring before Him. After God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's, the text says Cain's face fell. His face fell for sin which was crouching at the door, the text says, overtook him. He then slays his brother in a jealous rage. Adam and Eve's responsibility to create and to spread worshipers throughout creation has now taken a horrible turn in reverse I mean, instead of God's glory expanding through the the worship of their children, death and murder are what follows. We're barely a chapter past the first mention of the gospel. Now, there is some mystery as to what precisely was going on as far as where Cain went wrong and what he was thinking and what the Lord was thinking in this text. I tend to agree with... Old Testament scholar Daniel Block, who sees more emphasis on the manner, the heart attitude in which these two brothers made their offerings rather than the substance or the content of what they offered. Blood versus fruit of the ground. Block writes this, he says, God looks upon the offering through the lens of the worshiper's heart rather than seeing the worshiper through the lens of the offering. To visualize that statement, you can see what was just on the screen there for you. The significance here in mankind's responsibility to expand God's glory through the worship of His name, we dare not miss this foundational principle. That is our hearts when we gather in worship. Heartless Corporate worship that does not treasure nearness to God has a thing of unspeakable mercy and grace. That is a deadly enemy of worship, whether private or corporate. Cain apparently thought he was providing sufficient amount of sacrifice to please God. Well, what do you want from me? What, you want grain? Alright, I'll, I'll get the mixture right. What, what more do you want? What? You're not accepting mine and you're accepting His? This is what I do. It's my work. It's the fruit of my work. What? That's not fair. You've got to be kidding me. What more do you want of me, God? Do you hear probably, and I, I'm truly reading a little bit between the lines here, But it sure appears Cain's heart has been set on display by how he responds. I wonder for you and I, do we ever approach corporate worship with hearts that are far from God? Perhaps that religiosity chip starts to flare up within us. What more do you want from me, God? Look, here's some money. The plate passed. I got my kids here, didn't I? I tried singing, not super loud, but a little bit. I'm going through these motions. What more do you want? Make my life go well. Hmm. What's missing? Everything. Our heart. Humility. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. A recognition that it's only mercy that I have any kind of a covenantal relationship with this God of heaven. Before corporate worship is barely off the runway, this massively important reality must be before us. Our hearts before the Lord. As we continue to track corporate worship, we see under the old covenant several depots where we will want to stop off. Begin with the life of Abraham. The life of Abraham displays another covenantal mile marker in God's forming of a worshiping community and expanding the glory of His name throughout the earth. In Genesis 12, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, 
And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, reflecting on the life of Abraham. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abram hears the voice of God and obeys the Lord's call to leave his country along with its false worship in pursuit of a city that has foundations. A God-designed city. So by faith, Abram obeys, trusting that God is going to provide land, a blessing, and the promise of a great nation. Robert Rayburn refers to Abram. He says this, that he was a man of the tent and the altar. Wherever he pitched his tent, he built an altar in order that he might express his faith through worship. God's promise to Abraham involves offspring that would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. This promise of offspring defies logic, doesn't it, in the life of Abraham? For it's going to come about through miraculous means. A 90-year-old woman. What does innumerable offspring inevitably mean? Innumerable worshipers of the one true God. We then see the life of Moses. After encountering the presence of God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, Moses leads the people through the Red Sea while they witness the destruction of Pharaoh and his army. The exodus of Israel out of slavery, the entire Bible is going to look at as a defining act of national deliverance for this people as Yahweh's emblematic act of redemption on their behalf. And let's not forget, the text tells us it was a mixed multitude. Not all Hebrews that left, but a mixed multitude. So, Yahweh-fearing Egyptians joining with the Hebrew people crossing the Red Sea. God's worshiping community is multi-ethnic already and has been and should be today, streaming to Mount Zion to worship the one true God of heaven and earth. But the Exodus was, was simply the amazing journey to get God's people somewhere. And where are they going? Well, it is Mount Sinai where God is leading them. And Israel is given now a holy calling. We read in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Israel is called to mediate God's blessing to a world, serving God in priestly ways. What do priests do? They serve God in His holy presence. Expanding God's glory and His renown, His fame throughout the earth. The Lord officially constitutes Israel as a, His own worshiping community by giving them His law and writing it on tablets of stone. It's relevant for us to note that Mount Sinai itself represents degrees of holiness, gradations of holiness setting our calibrations to how we will understand what it means to approach God later on. All of Israel could not leave the base of the mountain or it was a capital offense. Moses and the 70 elders were given special audience before the Lord to feast in His presence, but it was Moses alone who could ascend the mountain to speak with God face to face. As Jonathan Gibson 
Mark Ernge write, they say regarding this event, a liturgy was formed that became the basic pattern for Israel's worship in the future. The liturgy reflected the structure of worship in Eden, of call, response, meal. Only now it included cleansing through sacrifice and mediated access through a prophet priest. What was implicit in Eden when God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins was now explicit at Sinai. Sacrifice was essential to the worship of God. And this is how the Old Testament worship service organically developed, they write. Under Moses and following Mount Sinai, Israel's corporate worship is significantly upgraded, you might say, as God graciously gives now new revelation. Corporate worship as an established pattern was beginning. But sadly, just as Adam and Eve broke covenant fellowship with God in the garden, Israel's idolatry, idolatry would once again poison this joy of God's presence. As God's glory enlarges, as more and more worshipers come to live in covenant with Him in obedience to His revealed law, the appeal of idol worship only seems to grow more and more as well. Give us a God like all the other nations. We hear Israel cry in a thousand different ways. We want to be like them. We're tired with Yahweh and what He demands of us. Let us fashion Him with our hands. What's so wrong about taking our worship of Yahweh into our own hands and incorporating some of these other worship ideas from the surrounding nations? We can do that. As we even discussed last week, as a lesson from the Protestant Reformation, the itch to innovate is always present with the church the church's worship in particular in every age. The worship God has already established. The worship of God always seems to many to appear as a block of marble just waiting to be shaped or reshaped by man according to his ideas and his creative improvements. Right? How many times and in how many ways can we fill in the gaps of what that looks like? As God's law was being given for the ordering of His covenant people, worship by the book was now to be the standard. Worship me on my terms according to the revelation I have given you in my law. And may we as a people be growing in our love for worship by the book. A book-created, a book-centered people. Worship that conforms to the Word not a combo, mashup, syncretistic word plus man's wisdom. As we continue, we see the tabernacle, the blinding glory revealed at Sinai, brought great fear to the hearts of many Israelites. Nevertheless, leaving Mount Sinai very well could have raised the question in the minds of God's people now, wait. That was spectacular how God met us on that mountain, but are we leaving Him behind? Is, is that where He is and now we are gone, removed from Him? But Yahweh is not like the territorial gods of the ancient world. God's relational presence comes to Israel through portable means, through the tabernacle. Portable, sacred space, you might say. Exodus 25 outlines God's command for how the tabernacle should be built, what it should contain, a chest, a table for food, a lampstand, as well as how Israel must honor God's prescribed means of approaching Him lest they experience His judgment. The tabernacle is also repeatedly referred to as the tent of meeting. The tent where God meets with man through covenant, through blood, on His terms. But it's all grace. The tent of meeting. The tabernacle marks a pivotal shift in where Yahweh's presence could be found and how God precisely was to be worshipped. God meets with His people at the mercy seat. 
guarded by cherubim with outstretched wings, this undeniable reminder of the angels who guarded entry to Eden. In the courtyard, burnt offerings were made and sins were forgiven and thanksgiving was rendered to God in His presence. The worship of God's name is growing, both in its sophistication, we might say, but also in terms of its sheer volume of worshipers as more and more people join God's covenant community. If the tabernacle conveys the mobile home, the -the on-the-go presence, we might say, the, the temple conveys God's presence taking up permanent resonance in the holy city of Jerusalem and in the midst of God's holy people. Things are reaching a real climax, we might say, right? In terms of corporate worship. Or are they? In 2 Chronicles 6, the text that Andrew read earlier, paralleled in 1 Kings 8, we read of the amazing scene in which David's temple is dedicated by his son Solomon. The musicians play, the glory cloud descends. It's spectacular. Nobody's seen anything like this before. Astounding. Pilgrims will travel from far and wide to behold the glory of this temple. We learn in Psalm 84 and Psalm 122. But what is Solomon's reaction? What would be your reaction? Are you kidding me? Someone get this on videotape. we got to remember this. This is spectacular. (laughs) I mean, this is amazing. This is exactly how I imagined it. Uh, Spectacular. It's, It's something we better post online. So epic, we can't forget this. Is that his reaction? Just the opposite, actually. It's as if he knows something is not complete. This is great. But something's not filled to the brim. Second Chronicles 6.18 But will God, Solomon speaking, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Think of how pregnant of a question that is in light of the whole of Scripture. Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, and the wisest man to ever live is thinking, I don't comprehend this. How will this work? Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I've built. Israel is assembled on sacred ground in the presence of God in a holy city with a consecrated people, and yet it's incomplete. In the centuries to follow, Israel is anything but a worshiping community. Well, a God-fearing worshiping community. They accept the idols of the surrounding nations. They intermarry. They forget God's laws. And as a result, division and disunity mark their existence. God raises up prophets to call them back to true worship, to genuine repentance. But eventually, Israel's judged by God through exile in which expressing corporate worship is no longer possible. They long to return to the land. And eventually, God uses Ezra and Nehemiah to restore a worshiping community within the land. How will God dwell on earth with men? Well, in the fullness of time, after many years of covenant unfaithfulness and silence from God, The Word incarnate. Jesus, the Son of God, is born. This is how God would dwell on earth with men. We then see worship under Christ. I wonder if you might read, if we might read aloud these verses up on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. With the coming of Messiah, the terms of how God relates to humanity drastically change. John's Gospel begins with this confession that God the Father through Jesus creates everything. In other words, Eden's chief architect has taken on flesh so he might tabernacle with us. A sinful people. Astounding. Just a couple chapters later, John teaches us an important lesson from Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman where we read Jesus teaching her so lovingly and patiently. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Corporate worship finds its ultimate temple in the person of Jesus Christ. For He has come for us. We then see the progress of this biblical theme in in the epistles as the Apostle Paul weighs in on the topic. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 that believers individually are referred to as temples. Temples indwelt by God's Spirit. This is the foundation for Paul's rationale for why Christians should remain morally pure. They are not their own. They belong to God. They've been bought with a price, and they're called now to glorify God in their bodies. Building on this idea in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul refers to the entire Christian community as the temple of God. These churches consisting of individual saints, Paul says, are to, in every place, call upon the name of the Lord. So the significance here lies in the fact that hallowing of God's name is no longer limited to temple worship in a geographical space, but wherever the people of the Lord assemble. Paul writes in Ephesians, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amazing coming together. This seed to oak tree theme is growing. It is climaxing. It is culminating. The Apostle Peter refers in chapter 2 to Christians as a spiritual house in a holy priesthood. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Daniel Block helpfully notes here, he says, what the physical temple was to Israel, the church as a spiritual community has become to the world. The holy residence of God indwelt by His Spirit. Wow. And lastly, we see corporate worship in in eternity. Former professor of mine very memorably defined the church in this short way. He said, The church is the covenant assembly of the triune king, called by God from all nations in order to be his holy sanctuary, to be his holy sanctuary, and to serve him as a kingdom of priests. This definition is beautiful because it so eloquently captures that the people of God as a worshiping community are simultaneously ground zero for enjoying God's relational presence among us 
while also giving us clarity as to what is our present and future vocation. What are we to do, brothers and sisters? Priestly service. Serve God. That is about the best synonym for what the word in both the Old Testament and the New translate. Worship synonymous with service. Serve the Lord. Fulfill your priestly duties as those united with Christ. Hebrews 7-10. through 10. Looking forward to going through this section next in our study through Hebrews. Reveals how old covenant shadows were themselves copies of heavenly realities. In other words, descriptions for how to build the temple and how God should be worshipped under the old covenant were indeed copies of heavenly realities. These heavenly realities depicted in Revelation 21 are the dimensions of the new Jerusalem which measure up to a macro level holy of holies. We saw this a while back in our study of the city leading us to dwelling as a city in God's presence forever. This city will know no barriers between God and His people. While Christians may rightly be referred to as individual temples themselves, Revelation 1, 6, 5 and 6 says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And if that seems to rhyme with something you've heard earlier or even be a direct quote, you'd be remembering Exodus 19. A very restatement of our privilege to live in the presence of God and to serve Him in His holy presence as blood-washed children of God. So by the time we arrive in Revelation, we see these themes. Corporate worship centers on serving God in His holy presence. It centers on praising Jesus the Redeemer. It marvels at God's fulfillment of His every promise and purpose. And it relishes fellowship around the marriage supper of the Lamb, treasuring God's relational presence in the New Jerusalem. The climax of biblical worship is found in experiencing these realities alongside, with, countless number of blood-bought saints in the Lord, purchased by Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the glorious splendor of corporate worship consummated in eternity. And it is where we are heading, brothers and sisters. So how does knowing and believing these truths regarding corporate worship impact my life and your life? We might say, how then shall we live in light of these glorious truths, these glorious realities? What's the proper response to such a wide scan of a dense topic. Let me offer just a few ideas. How do we respond to this gift of corporate worship? First, actively, actively. That implies effort and work on our part. Actively treasure the exquisite gift of corporate worship since it is the end for which God created the world. Phrase borrowed from Jonathan Edwards' famous work. God created the world (coughs) so it might reverberate with the splendor of His majesty, not yours. That is why it exists. If you're outside of Christ this morning, presently not trusting in the gospel, I hope this simple flyover of the Bible story concerning worship will help convince you that we are hardwired for worship. We've been created this way by a good and all-wise God. The question isn't whether you are a worshiper. The question is what or who are you worshiping? God or the idols of this age, which are infinite, Though it's hard to humbly admit this, do you, friend, devote your life to the worship of your own glory, 
your own pleasure, your own success? Is your back willfully turned to God because you actually believe you can find deeper joys and satisfaction in your own soul or elsewhere? If so, I, I implore you with an appropriate amount of urgency that the Bible brings to the table to turn to Christ and enter into the joy of worshiping a Savior who can forgive your worst sins and still love you and desire to be near you even after He knows everything about you because He is able to save to the uttermost. Brothers and sisters, if corporate worship is as significant in the Scriptures as it appears, our present evaluation of worship, corporate worship, and our participation in it must be revalued, elevated, as the partial flowering of God's worship-designed goal for humanity. That ought to mean something for our priorities. That ought to mean something for our time, our choices, how we treasure this moment. It ought to result in some measure of mourning when we providentially have to miss the grace of it all. Obviously, work schedules, vacations, visiting family, friends across the country, worshiping even with different congregations, and on and on are the normal things of life that draw us away from time to time. But do we long? Where's our heart? Do we long for God's presence in corporate worship as His new covenant temple assembles to worship His name. Resist the notion that a church's corporate worship service is a nice spiritual boost every now and then. But what really counts is what you got going on on your own with God. That is foundational. That is incredibly important. But it cannot ever stand as a full-size stand-in for what God does in our midst as His people. Secondly, actively fulfill. Actively fulfill the privilege of being a temple servant of the triune God. I hope this has been evident this morning. Understanding biblical worship greatly helps connect why it is significant that service is the primary dimension of biblical worship. Knowing that I will serve the Lord alongside the rest of the Lord's people as a kingdom of priests forever, I will not be bored. I will not wonder what I will do the next day. The Lord so sweetly will fill our hearts with the joy of priestly service forever that it will be an unspeakable privilege day after day living in the light of His glory. But does it not make sense that we ought to be cultivating this spiritual discipline in our lives in the here and now? Priestly service, serve the Lord by living before Him selflessly, sacrificing for the good of His people. Do you serve the Lord with gladness as the psalmist writes? Are you doing it out of guilt because you feel pressured? Hope not. But in our individualistic, consumer-oriented American culture, laboring joyfully and sacrificially for the Lord in the local church can oftentimes be a rare find. But may this conviction grip us today to our very cores. May it never leave us until we die. Thirdly, actively respond. Actively respond to the re-presentation. The representing. I don't mean representations as if through icons or something like that, but the, the setting before afresh a rehearsing of the gospel by means of the very things God told us to do when we gather. Scripturally ordained means of grace. Singing. Do you sing, brothers and sisters? You have something to sing about for sure. And may those fears and inhibitions be checked at the door. And you may never sing in any other context of life, but let it rip when you gather with the Lord's people. The prayers that we offer, 
the prayers that we offer, do you actively track with in your heart what is being prayed? You are being led. Track with it. Hang your own heart cries along each and every pillar of thought that progresses through the pastoral prayer, prayer of confession, different prayers that we may have. Through the reading of Scripture, what a delight that was this morning just to hear without commentary the Word of God read as we witness baptisms, the Lord's Supper as we have in just the past couple weeks here, both of those. Do you see gospel truth and treasure it as we rehearse it together? And lastly, actively love one another as the new covenant temple of the Lord indwelt by His Spirit. If we view one another as members of a country club or some other similar shared enterprise, we may relate cordially as co-workers who share a particular interest together. But when we view one another as fellow worshipers of the God of heaven, who are laboring side by side in this sin-cursed world, seeking to hold fast to Christ in a hostile age, our perspective is different. Our perspective has changed. When a brother or sister sins, our hearts are grieved because we are united to them through Christ. When tragedy strikes, we feel one another's pain and reach out in Christ's love. When spiritual fruit abounds, we do not pride ourselves. Oh, let's look what's going on at that church. They got the mixture just right. Not at all. We exist for the glory of God's name, the expansion of His name and His fame to the ends of the earth. And He indeed is with us even to the end of the age. May the Lord give us the grace to respond in faith in a manner worthy of being named among the stones that He's using in His temple building project. And may we revalue and re-treasure the sweet and profound gift of corporate worship. Let's pray. Father, be glorified in our midst. May our hearts reach another level of heartfelt appreciation for what the finished work of Christ through His death and resurrection and His present ascension and installment as heaven's King. We thank You for Your Spirit that dwells in our midst. And may we see to it that this place, this gathering, is indeed ordered in a way that glorifies Your name. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.